As we have walked through the book of Micah this Lent, we've seen the Lord lay out the problem of Judah's sin. Through the failure of leaders and a people who were more than willing to follow them, Judah has chased after and built their lives upon false gods and idols. That's not something that could be ignored. And so the Lord makes it clear that he will act, first to bring about judgment, and then forgiveness and salvation. Chapter 5, which Pastor Josiah helpfully explored last week, made it clear that the Lord was moving to bring victory for his people, not just over their earthly enemies, but the greatest enemy of all, sin itself. Now, with chapter 5 being such a forward-looking, positive chapter, it might surprise us that in chapter 6, the Lord brings things back to the problem of sin. Why would he do this? Well, it's as if he is saying, now that I've I've laid out the problem and how I'm going to act, make your case. Why should I not judge you? As I have said. In fact, that's how our chapter opens, isn't it? Arise, plead your case. He's giving the people of Judah an an opportunity of sorts to to get what they say they really want, right? That, That life of joy and peace and freedom without experiencing judgment for their sin. And really, that's what we want, isn't it? We want the shortcut. We want to get all those, those good things of God, but, but not, not the judgment piece. We, we look for the shortcuts in life, right? We all want to be in perfect shape without ever having lifted a weight. We all want perfectly functioning hearts and cholesterol levels while eating a diet of bacon and cheeseburgers and ice cream. We want Jesus. We want redemption. We want eternal life. And we want that while living however we please. And so the Lord, having shown the people of Judah the problem and his solution, now says, make your case. Let each side lay out why they are in the right. And in doing this, we find the Lord bringing things back to basics, and he's answering a question that so many of us have asked before. What does God really want from me? What does he want for my life? What does he want from my life? And the answer to that is a relationship that fuels our living. Now, to see how at the heart of this passage is is a relationship that fuels our living, we need to to start at at both the beginning and the end of our passage. We're going to kind of start at the two ends and work towards the middle today. At the beginning and the end, the Lord is showing us how sin impairs and fractures and wounds relationships. In verses 1 through 2, the Lord calls the people to make their case, and he announces that he has an indictment against them. That would have been a shocking thing for the people to hear. After all, they were his people. They were the people that he had chosen, and he is their God. 
And now they stand in opposition to one another because of their sin. What that tells us right from the very beginning is that all sin, no matter what it is, all sin is against God. Whether it's directly against another person or not, all sin is against God. And I mean it, no matter what it is. Be it that that white lie that we tell, or the kind of heartless, thoughtless online comment that we made, or the, the muttering and gossiping about other people that we do. From those things that we want to kind of label as little sins all the way to the more serious stuff, right? Theft and murder and that sort of thing. All of it matters. All sin matters because all sin wounds our God. All of it is an affront to his nature, to who he is. Now at this point, some of us might wonder, well, how could I possibly wound God? If he is all-powerful, right, he's the all-powerful God, how could, how could I ever affect him? What kind of power do I have over God? And, and well, the answer is none, in truth. We can't cause God to feel anything. It's the doctrine that that we call the impassibility of God. It's that nice theological phrase. It's a good one. You throw that one out, people think, that guy knows what he's talking about. It's what Anglicans confess in the first of our 39 articles when we say that God is without passions. Now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't feel anything, right? As if he's this stone-hearted kind of heartless being that, 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 yeah, looks on us with, with total indifference. That, that's not what that means. It means that what he feels is what he allows himself to feel. It's what he causes himself to feel without reference to us at all. And what he feels when he sees our sin is offense. Our sin is offensive to him. It wounds him because his nature is perfect. He is perfect in holiness and love, and sin by its very nature is unholy and unloving. There is no such thing as a loving sin. Verse 3 here lays this, this woundedness that our God feels, it lays it out for us, it lays it bare for us. It says, Oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. It's the call of a parent who is watching their child do everything wrong. He's watching as his children are destroying their lives and their souls through, through reckless living, through chasing after false gods and embracing the cultural values of that time. He's wounded as his people in embracing their sin believe that following God is a burden because of his call to faithfulness and holiness. He's wounded as his people decide they'd much rather live their own way. That's actually where the end of our passage comes in. 
When we read in verse 16 about the people keeping the statutes of Omri and the works of Ahab, well, who are these guys? Well, Omri was Ahab's father, and these two were two of the most sinful and evil kings in the history of Israel. We're told in the book of Kings that Omri was more sinful and evil than all of the kings who came before him. And let me tell you, friends, if you've read, read the book of Kings, you know that's no small feat. And son Ahab, he's the king that married Jezebel and was the chief adversary of the faithful prophet Elijah. Both of these kings were successful politicians by the world's standards, but in the eyes of God, they were sinful, known for idolatry, injustice, chasing after money, and in Omri's case, perhaps going even as far as child sacrifice. It is those values that the people are being told that they are chasing after, that they are keeping in Micah's time. That while they are trying to unburden themselves of following God, that is the path that they are choosing. And because of this, the Lord needs to act. He can't let this stand. And so verses 9 through 15 state that, states that the Lord cannot ignore their sinful hearts and their actions. That he will, he will frustrate their plans... Because all that they are living for and striving for, it needs to be stopped because what they're, they're living and striving for is contrary to God's nature. It is opposed to him. He's showing them that they can't keep living for this sin and walk with him at the same time. It's impossible. And that is true of sin, whether it's the sin that was occurring in Micah's time or the sin that's happening in ours. All sin leads to a fractured relationship with God because it puts us in opposition to who he is. Sin has and always will be an affront to God. And so the result is what verse 2 told us. That the Lord is in a position of contending with his people. Those very same people that he loves and has cared for. He is now in opposition to. Sin has fractured that perfect, loving, gracious relationship that people were meant to have with their father. And so if sin wounds and fractures, what is it that brings healing? Well, it's the very nature of God himself. It's his graciousness. You see, in making his case, the Lord first asks how he's wearied the people, and then he spends verses 4 and 5 laying out how in his grace he has always cared for them. In verse 4, he points out that he not only delivered the people from slavery, but provided faithful leadership for them through the desert, through Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. In verse 5, he reminds them of the, the account of King Balak, of Moab, who sought to curse the people of God. But rather than allowing that to happen, the Lord spoke supernaturally through the mouth of Balaam to pronounce blessing on his people rather than a curse. 
Because it is God's heart not to leave his people wandering on their own, but to lead them. It is his heart not to see his people cursed by the evil rulers of this world, but to have them hear and receive the blessing of their God who loves them. From Shittim to Gilgal, the Lord says, meaning, meaning from the desert to the promised land, he has watched over and led his people. If you were to go back and read these accounts, right? if you read from Exodus basically through Joshua, I mean, you could keep going, but just for this time period, Exodus through Joshua, if you read those accounts, you would see very quickly that God is doing these things simply because of his grace. The wanderers in the wilderness weren't exactly cheering God on as he was leading them. Right? They were not thrilled to be his chosen people. In fact, on more than one occasion, they say, it would have been better of us if we had died in slavery than followed you out. These people are not blessed because of their merit, but simply because the Lord chose them. Simply because of who he is. It's why that truth that we just talked about, the truth that we can't make God feel anything, is actually a gift to us. Because God's default, who he is, is grace. We sometimes think that that God is sitting in heaven looking down on us, and and he's just looking for his opportunity to smite someone. As if all he wants to do is pour his wrath down on people. Now, if that's the view you have of God, I could understand why you're trying to unburden yourself of following him. Who would want to follow a God when that's your view of him? So you're either going to walk away from him entirely or you're going to try to change him. You're going to try to do something to make him feel love and grace toward you so that he won't destroy you. But any relationship you would have with him would be based entirely on fear. But friends, God is unchanging. He is unmoving. And that is a gift to us because what God looks down on his people with is grace. If you ever wondered... Why, when you read the Old Testament, the the prophets and the writers, they are constantly pointing back to the Exodus, just as Micah did here. It's because it is the perfect example of who our gracious God is. The people did not appease God and so were chosen by him, but rather he delivered a sinful and unruly people simply because it's his nature to deliver a sinful and unruly people. He points to his actions throughout history as a way of saying to us, remember who I really am. Whenever you want to unburden yourself of following God, remember who he really is. Remember who you are running from, that he is a God of pure grace. It's the same reason why the New Testament authors are constantly pointing to the cross and the resurrection. And why churches must continue to proclaim week in and week out the cross and the resurrection. 
Because in his grace on the cross, Jesus Jesus burdened himself with the sins of the world so that in him we might experience the grace of God and become the righteousness of God. The healing of our fractured relationship between us and our God, it starts with the reception of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that is unchanging. So long as we have breath in our lungs, the grace of God is there for us. So if that's where healing begins, the obvious answer then is to receive it, right? Receive the grace of God. What possible other answer could we give? I'll give you one, because that's not the answer we give. We should accept it, but we don't. It's not what we do. It's not what the people of Micah's time did. Know how I know? Look at the text. Verses 6 and 7, they give us the response from the people here. And it seems to start well. What shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before him and bow myself before God on high? That is a great question to ask. That is a fantastic question if the answer you come up with is nothing at all. It's a great question if you realize, as I've said before, that the only thing you contribute to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. It's a great question question if we come to the cross and we say nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace that was rock of ages by the way in case anyone wants to look that up top five hymn at least for me it should be for you too That is a great question if those are our answers. But sadly, that's not how we want to answer, is it? And it's not how the people answered. Verse 7 tells us that rather than looking to the Lord, they look to themselves. They make outlandish claims and propose to fill the temple with thousands of rams, right? Rivers of oil brought in as an offering in amounts that no person could possibly possess. They even go so far as to offer the sacrifice of their firstborn, something which would have been wholly repugnant to the Lord. You see, the people are not asking how they can be forgiven, but rather they're saying, what do you want from me, God? What do you want from my life? What do you want me to do for you, God? It's where our hearts can go, isn't it? to look at Jesus, to look at following him and think, what do you want from me? I mean, I'm a good person. I do good things. What else do you want from me, God? And it's here that that wonderful verse that everyone loves from Micah 6 comes in. It's that fridge magnet verse, right? We all got him. Here's another one. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God? It's a great verse, isn't it? 
I love that verse. Everybody loves that verse. I see it plastered all over the place. Here's the thing. If we don't understand who our God is, we're going to read that verse terribly. Friends, never for a moment underestimate our ability to take what is offered in grace and turn it into moralism. We love moralism. We love every moment of it. We love it more than Jesus. Because we can control moralism. We can make all of our life and salvation about what we do and how we live so long as it's about moralism and not Jesus. Just this week, I was standing on my front lawn talking to a neighbor, and I heard from him what I've heard from countless people before and far too many Christians. He said, yeah, there's a God. Absolutely there's a God. You can't deny that. You can't look around and say there's no God. All right, good start. Then he continued. But we can't really know him because all those things that were written about him, they're so old. We can't really know him. And so all we really need to do is be respectful. Just be respectful and love people. And whatever you do, just keep it in private so that I don't have to see it. I only need to worry about what affects me. I'll just be a good person and that's good enough. That's how we'll read this verse if we don't understand who God is. That is making life about us. It's about making salvation about the grand gesture, the being good enough for God, appeasing him with our goodness. And that's what we want it to be about. And that's what this verse can sound like, right, in certain lights, isn't it? Isn't doing justice and loving kindness, doesn't that sound an awful lot like just be respectful? Does it be caring? I mean, yeah, it does, right? Sort of. That's why we actually need to read this verse. First of all, in the context it's given. Don't rip scriptures out of the context that they're given in, friends. No matter how much you love the verse, keep it with the other ones around it. It'll tell you what it means. We also need to read this verse back to front. Walking humbly with your God is the key to this verse, the whole thing. How do you walk humbly with God? By having the humility to know you can't save yourself. You can't make yourself good. You can't make yourself respectful and loving and gracious. You need God for those things. You need to walk with him for those things, meaning you have to be in relationship with him. That is what walking with him means. How does that happen? Well, the people made an interesting statement in their their comments, didn't they? When they were thinking God was being ridiculous and asking way too much of them, what did they say? Should we give our firstborn? Would that be enough for you, God? And the answer is no, it wouldn't have been. Because God needed to give his firstborn. You see, our moralistic hearts, we look at God 
and we think he sets a bar, a moral bar that is just absurdly high. And yet God looks at our standards and he says, you think my moral bar is too high? You have no idea how high it actually is. And so I'm going to clear it for you. Our most prized possession, whatever it is, that's what it was for them. The firstborn was the most prized possession at that time. Whatever it is for us, it could never be enough to atone for our sin. It could never be enough to get us over that bar. But God gave his most prized possession for us so that in Jesus we could walk with our God again. We need the humility to acknowledge that. You want to love kindness, you want to love justice, you want to have a heart that genuinely loves and cares for people, that defends the poor, the lonely, the outcast, the the wounded, the sad, the depressed, the vulnerable. You want that? I know I do. But then you need to have the humility to know that you need to be in relationship with God. You need the humility to know that you have to be walking with Him. And that is only possible when we look at the sinfulness of our own hearts and acknowledge that he and he alone can save us. Justice, love, kindness, humility, those are gospel values. And they are terms that have been co-opted and twisted to become hollow shells of what they are. We hear these terms all the time and they're rendered meaningless at this point because what they really mean is found in God and God alone. Because he is love, justice, kindness, and humility. He is grace. And so living out these values as the church is called to, living out their God-given meaning rather than what they've been twisted into, means having the humility to come to Jesus, to acknowledge that he has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Our sin has fractured our relationship with our Father. Yet his nature is pure, and he is unchanging in his grace and his love for us. When we look to that grace, when we look to him instead of to ourselves, he then empowers us to live out Holy Spirit-infused lives that are characterized by these values that he has here. Humility and justice and love and kindness. The case that Jesus makes is really pretty simple. What does God want from you? He wants you to stop looking to yourself to clear a bar that's impossibly high for you. He wants you to stop letting moralism turn you against him to chase after the things of this world. Rather, to look to Jesus in his grace and find in him what heals your fractured relationship with God and be empowered to live and love as he did. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.